Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, what another hot, hot, hot inflation report means for stocks. They've been mostly lower today, and now some big-time earnings are looming. We'll debate what all of that means to your money with the Investment Committee. Joining me for the hour today, Bryn Talkington, Jason Snipe, Michael Farr, and right here on set is Joe Terranova. I'll take you to the wall. It is uh, mostly red, as you see across the board there. The uh, 10-year yield was above three. It dropped down a little bit. It's 294 now, and the stock picture looks far better right now than it did right after the CPI came out. So, Joe, I, I begin with you. I, I think what the part of the narrative is today is that, yes, this was disappointing. Mm-hmm. Yes, it was hot, hot, hot. But this is the last red hot number. That's sort of Kramer's perspective. He says that will be the theme for today. He says he's sticking by that peak inflation call if, and it's a big if, if you get 75, which you think you're going to get, or 100 basis points, that will do it. What are we supposed to do with stocks right now if we believe that this was, in fact, the last hot number? Even if you don't believe that this, in fact, was the, the, the last hot number, I, I, I think the market is in a place where you've had enough of a valuation reset that on days like today where you see a significant decline, you try and find opportunity. Why do I say that? Because I think ultimately through the course of time, we have a solution here. We have a solution that comes in the form of further rate hikes that is going to continue to contract economic demand. That is so obvious to me right now, Scott. If you look at a three-month to a 10-year, which everyone six months ago, that's all they wanted to talk about. Yeah. Three-month to 10-year was still positive, no recession. Well, guess what? Three-month to a 10-year went from 233 in the beginning of May to 65 basis points now. So you have a path out of this. The path, the price to pay, is an economic contraction that's being catalyzed by rate hikes. And it's a matter of how quickly those rate hikes are actually going to come. And they're going to come. I think between the meeting in July and September, Mm -hmm. we need at least 150 basis points of further tightening. And then once September 1st comes around, you're going to get the quantitative. Oh, so are you you alluding to like an intermeeting move? Because I'm starting to wonder about that myself. Now, Leisman's going to join us in a a little bit. um, And I'm going to ask him directly what he thinks about that. I'm wondering if, if today's print makes that more likely. And he, he, Leisman, has suggested that um, you have to start recounting your, your time period of when you thought inflation was was peaking or at least was going to start cooling. And, and again, Steve's going to join us in a minute with his insight and his reporting on, on what he knows. But is that what you're suggesting? Well, I think with, within today's report, what's troublesome is that rents and the shelter component is at a 36 year high. So that's that's not a solution that could be reflected in, well, copper's lower, corn's lower, lumber's lower, gasoline's well, lower. Well, a lot is lower. Look, co- copper lowest level since November of 20. Shelter's a crude, big part of Crude CPI. lowest since April. Agreed. Gas price is down five bucks a month uh, for a month ago. Uh, inventories are up. Mm-hmm. So a lot is going right 
in, in terms of where you want to see inflation going. It's just there's a lot that's wrong and it's it's tough but to deal a, with again. But there's a solution to that. There's a solution to that. You could push against that by further rate hikes. And, and I think people are dismissing that rate hikes might not work. They are working. You're seeing that the economy, the demand is weakening. That's what we need. That's what we want here. Right. But the, so if, if there's a way out of this, there is uh, Jason Snipe. Does that mean that I'm supposed to? And I, maybe this is what the market's trying to grapple with today. First inclination, sell stocks. Uh, first inclination, rates up. Uh, market comes back a little bit. Rates go down. If there is this solution out of it, and I, and I think it's going to work, meaning meaning we think it's going to work if you do, does that mean you're supposed to buy stocks today? So obviously, Scott, I mean, it was a hot number, as, as, as you and Joe were just talking about. I mean, a nine-handle, 40-year high. We've been talking about uh, inflation for a long time. It's a major problem in the economy. Um, but what I would say is, obviously, this number is always backward-looking, right? Um, and you mentioned uh, commodity prices have come down. I mean, copper's down 24 percent. Crude is down 20 percent. Wheat and corn is down another 23 percent. That is not baked into this number that we're seeing. But the Fed has got to do the, continue to do its work. They'll, re, they'll raise 75 points at least, as Joe mentioned, at least 75 basis points uh, this quarter, well, this month, and then in September, uh, likely another 75. And I think that is where we need to take a look uh, and, see, and see where you need to be. I think from an allocation perspective, as I'm, as I'm looking at uh, investor accounts, I think that Bayer... Uh, the, the, the kind of the rub between growth and value. I mean, we're, we're more defensively oriented right now. I mean, we're overweighted there, about 60% of our portfolio. But I do think you cannot abandon growth in this environment. I think it's an opportunity to look at some mm -hmm. names, especially if cash is on the sidelines. I mean, the market has gotten beaten up a lot. We're trading at 16 times earnings, 16 times forward right now. So I think it is an opportunity to continue to look at these, these types of opportunities. So, Bryn, Tom Lee agrees with Jim Cramer to the surprise of nobody um, that he thinks this will be the last uh, extra ugly. Those are his words. Extra ugly uh, CPI print. Let's say that Jim and Tom Lee are right. What am I supposed to do? Why wouldn't I want to? If they're right, why wouldn't now be a decent time to buy stocks? I, I, I mean, is that crazy or, or what? <laughs> No, and we're, we're all in stocks, and I think it depends what stocks you're buying. But I think, first of all, Scott, you have to think through is that what is the Fed going to do, right? So Tom Lee and Jim can be right about we're not going to see another nine handle, but we're not going to go back and get like a three handle. We're, we're so far away from where the Fed wants us to be. And so the question is not are we reaching peak inflation and does it go from nine to seven and a half? The question is, what is the Fed going to do about it? Because I'm a staunch believer in not fighting the Fed. And so I think you're going to continue to have, you know, this this weight on stocks because of what the Fed is going to do. And the Fed, I'm certain at the end of the month, is going to have to continue to talk really tough. It's priced in that they do 75, maybe after Canada, surprise 100 basis points, they do the same. But I just think this is going to continue to be a stranglehold on the market. On the bright side, though, what's interesting today that I'm noticing is that you would have thought that like high growth tech names 
would have really sold off because you would say, well, it was surprisingly high. The Fed's going to raise rates even more. And then when I look, it's like the ARC is up, mm -hmm. Amazon's up, the Qs are barely down. So to me, I'm starting to say, well, the market, especially on the tech side, maybe it's starting to price in what, you know, we've already priced in so much of the pain. So I think that's a really positive for investors that, that are looking out longer term to say, well, that's really good sign to see those higher growth names. I'm actually turning green today. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of what I'm alluding to, Michael. If the market now actually tries to believe that this is the last of the hot, hot, hot prints because of some of those metrics, which I read to you, copper, crude, gas prices, et, et cetera, even though, you know, rent and some other metrics of, of inflation remain, you know, horrifically high. What does it mean for the stock market? Scott, I think we're, you know, seeing two things. Uh, okay, so inflation, if it is peaking, I don't know why we're so desperate to say that it's peaking, other than, you know, we need to start somewhere, but it's a little bit like saying the forest fire is uh, slowing down a little bit. Good, but we still got a forest fire. And I think with the numbers in the commodity markets that have been coming down, we're also seeing a dollar that has been on fire. I mean, versus the euro, we've gone from a dollar 13 to one euro now to almost one for one. I mean, we're within fractions of a penny now, so it would make sense that you would see lower pricing in those commodities. There's a downside to that really strong dollar, too. But I don't think, if you listen to Bryn too, I don't think you see a bottom in stocks until the Fed indicates they're near a top. As long as the Fed is repricing money and changing the rate of interest and we don't know where it's going to go, we can't really determine a fair valuation. So we're 20% we're plus lower. Uh, this isn't a bad place, I think, to start nibbling. But to call a bottom in here strikes me as premature. To have a discipline strikes me as essential. Well, I mean, it feels a ways off before the Fed declares that, you know, they're at a top and, and they're going to have this pivot that some but if you, try and suggest if, was if happening you look, later if this you look year. At, yeah, well, but OK. And, and as soon as the market sees that, if you go through these tightening cycles in the past, it happens somewhere between halfway through the tightening cycle to two thirds of the way through. The market starts to see that clarity. And that's when you start to rebound. But, you know, as Joe was saying, Look, they could raise, you could have an inner cycle hike here in the next couple of months. But if you get 75 basis points here and 75 basis points even in September, mm. it's another point and a half that takes Fed funds rates over 3%. We're not going to have a two handle on a treasury, on the 10-year treasury at that point. Money's still becoming more expensive. So it's a perfect segue to actually bring in Leesman now, our senior economics reporter. So I don't know where you want to start. Um, the market seems to be getting at least a little one arm around the idea of maybe 100 basis points, um, right? Because it was non-existent to now pricing it in a little bit more, even if it's you know, in, the, in the mid 20 percent range. What's the likelihood of that now? And, and what does this hot, hot, hot print mean for that? Uh, it's an excellent place to start, Scott, and, and I think because we can put some numbers on it, uh, at least we have some probabilities. Uh, going into this number, there was something like a 2.5% probability of a 100 basis point hike. That's now 38%, or as one uh, commentator said, it's a non-trivial probability. 
out there. The market is definitely beginning to toy with this idea of the possibility of 100. And then it gets a little squishy as to what happens in September. If they do 100, a 50 is more likely. If they do a 75, then another 75 is more likely in September. But it's worth it to look at the outlook. What's happened, Scott, is the idea of the peak funds rate has been brought forward so that now we're looking at, there's that probability right there going from, we'll call it 3% to something like uh, 38% now. Um, and then guys, if you look at the next chart, if you don't mind, the peak funds right now is 350 and change, but that now happens in January. That had been all the way off into the summer. Uh, now it's been brought forward. So a much more aggressive Fed. And Scott, if you don't mind just to kind of, I hate to quote myself, but what you were talking about earlier is that's the problem. There's two things. I think, I think Michael Farr has it right. It's not up, down, or it's the uncertainty that mm -hmm. really matters, that you can't really put a floor into this whole darn thing until you, you have a little more certainty about the Fed outlook. And the trouble with today is when the Fed says we need several months of, of declining inflation in order to sort of get an idea of where we're going and how we're doing it, well, you got to restart counting today and wait for the right. next inflation report. Well, well, that's what gets me to you know, throw a huge bucket of cold water on the idea that some have been putting forward that the Fed's not going to have to go uh, as much as once thought in September, even that you could do 25 maybe in, in September. And, and that is why some are sticking to their lofty targets, Steve, for the S&P 500 for the end of the year. It's all predicated on the fact that the Fed is not yeah. going to have to do as much as initially was thought. I want to know about that, but also th this idea of an intermeeting move in August. Can they really afford to do nothing between July and September? Um, I, I don't know what they gain from that, Scott, because all of what the Fed does is, is move the market by its intentions. I think there'll be plenty of Fed speak in August. I'm pretty sure about that. Um, and I think that they'll, they'll be able to communicate their intentions of 50 or 75. In any event, the market will price it in according to the incoming data and the speech by the Fed. I don't think they gain anything by an intermeeting move. Uh, I could be proven wrong if that's needed. Um, but the other side of the question here, Scott, is, um, you know, when we start to see some kind of peak in this whole thing, uh, maybe in, in, in your younger days, I know in mine, I used to do some mountain climbing. Uh, I know, hard to believe. Um, and I remember you'd get up there and you'd think, well, this is the top, you know. And then either the cloud would clear, you'd come around a bend. Uh, and it, no, this was not the top. There was another peak to come. And the trouble is that, uh, you know, earlier when, when you remember that story was circulating, Scott, about peak inflation a couple months ago. Mm -hmm. And I leaned about as heavily uh, as heavily as I could against that story because I saw the uh, housing inflation coming through and I saw the shutdown in China coming through. And of course, I didn't think we were done processing the increase from Ukraine uh, and the, U the Ukraine war and what's happened with Russia with energy and grain. I'm not sure those three stories have played out yet. Again, quoting Michael Farr, he was right to point out that housing number. So did Joe Terranova. That's one third of your CPI. You tell me, are a lot of houses going to be built that are going to bring down housing prices? Yep. I don't hear any stories about rents going, going easy. So uh, I'm still, look, I want to be with Jim Cramer on this idea that we've hit peak inflation. Um, and he's absolutely right that those commodity prices are out there. I just think there's a whole lot of other moving parts that give me uncertainty that whether or not we've reached the top of that mountain. So let me ask you this, because this is all that, that, that really matters, um, with all due respect to Jim's perspective. And, and everybody else is on this panel and wherever, whoever else has an opinion anywhere. 
You think that Jay Powell thinks that this is the last hot, hot, hot number? <laughs> I know what he hopes, you know. Yeah, I know, <laughs> but I want to know, what, do you, do you I, think I, he believes that story? Look. That this will be the last of the red hot inflation prints? You know, Scott, I'm going to take a third answer on that. Not yes or no, but kind of like it doesn't matter. Jay Powell has laid out to us the idea that, and, and other members of the Fed have laid out the idea that they need to see a series of declining inflation reports in order to become more comfortable with the inflation outlook. And if this is the highest one, great. And if you go down to 8.8 .8 next month, you know, I don't think that necessarily means he's going to ease off on the pedal. The other thing is, just take a look, guys, at the two-line chart that I prepared for this conversation. You do see a little bit of moderation in the core. Uh, part of what Jim's uh, outlook is is what's happening to, uh, to auto prices. I talked to Phil LeBeau. He's not quite so uh, happy about what's going to happen to auto prices if they come from the dealer level rather than the wholesale level. Scott, there's a uh, what do you want to call it? Some kind of gap between what happens at the wholesale level and the consumer level. Sometimes that means they don't pass on price increases. And in this case, maybe it means they don't pass on price decreases quite so quickly. So I'm a little more circumspect. I hope Jim Cramer is 100% right. Yeah, so does everybody else. Uh, Steve, I appreciate it. That's Steve Leesman right. joining us there. My pleasure. So, Thanks, guys. Bryn, if you, if you continue our conversation, so what if then for, for stocks, you, you think hawkish Fed plus higher rates uh, bad for the housing market, which is why you sold Lennar. And you didn't even own it for that long. You bought it towards the end of June at 67, and then you just sold it. Can you talk me through that? Yeah, so I, I think housing is a really interesting sector. Structurally, we have a housing shortage. And so I think this is like one of the most interesting parts of the market. And so that's why I originally bought it. And I thought it had been overdone. I listened to the earnings call. It had a four PE. I think it has a five right now. But what's fascinating is the White House press secretary, as well as Biden, the past three days have been telling us that this inflation number was going to be really hot. And they kept saying, well, it's going to be old data. And so I knew this number was going to come in high because they already had told us. And so my sense was, well, I've got around a 15% gain on the name. This is definitely a bird in the hand type of market when you can get a 15% return in a, in a few weeks, which I didn't expect that to happen. And so I felt that the Fed would be more aggressive or the market would think the Fed would be more aggressive after this hot print. And so I just took my, took, you know, took my profits. Um, but I definitely want to get back in because I do think this structural change, the structural shortage that we have, will be positive for them long term. But now I just need to look and see where it's going to trade. It's really not down very much today, which is somewhat surprising, but great. So I think as an investor, be a bird in the hand versus two in the bush right now. Yeah. So, Joe, you have an interesting move, too. You bought Chipotle mm -hmm. again. Mm -hmm. Why? Why? Why do you keep zeroing in on this one of, of well, all the stocks in this market? Why? Why? Why CMG? I think there's a, there's a very good lesson there for the viewers, and and that's in the environment that we're in now, where you have persistent and elevated volatility, you want to stick to investing and trading in companies that you know well. Um, you, you don't want to really step outside your comfort zone and explore opportunities in a company that you don't know so well. And I know Chipotle very well. I've traded around it for the last couple of years, sometimes really well, 
and sometimes not so good. I've cut my losses when I can. In looking at my portfolio, I am significantly underweight consumer discretionary. Lululemon is all I have. When I look at the opportunity where a market down uh, significantly today presents itself, I wanted to add some exposure to consumer discretionary. Chipotle is going to be the name that I'm going to look at. In terms of fast casual, it is clearly outperforming its peers in terms of its ability to deliver on margins and offsetting the inflationary costs. Understand they raised prices in Q1 10%. Consumers kept coming back. They're raising prices in Q2 12.5%. 42% of sales are now digital. So it's a great company. Brian Nickel is really clearly guiding this company in the right direction. And I just needed to increase the exposure. I'm comfortable with the name added it to the portfolio. I will add one thing to this conversation. Mm -hmm. I have too much agriculture exposure. It's not working. I've advocated that over the last several months. Mm -hmm. If the market gives me a little bit of a lift, whether it's Deer, Archer Daniels, Midland, or Bungie, I'm probably going to have to sell one of those names. Okay. You keep us up to date. Will do. You tell us when and if you do. Up next, our halftime headliner, the Wharton professor, Jeremy Siegel, is with us in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. All right, stocks down, well off their lows. Now let's welcome in the Wharton Professor of Finance, Jeremy Siegel. Professor, it's good to have you back with us, okay? So, for, so people know where you have stood. You wanted the Fed to be more aggressive than most. And then you came to the, I think, view that you worried they were going to be too aggressive and they were going to push right. the economy into a recession. Right. The problem <laughs> is inflation remains painfully too hot. What right. are they supposed to do now? All right. Well, first of all, Jay Powell must be forward looking. And honestly, the statistics we're getting are very backward looking. I mean, I'm, I'm with Jim Cramer on this. Listen, you've heard me say, I've been saying that the housing, the way this, the government does the housing inflation is so lag. We already had 20% increases in prices and rents. It's only recorded a six and seven and eight, and it's gonna get in there over the next uh, 12 months. And it is a very big fraction. So the printed numbers are gonna remain bad, even though the actual numbers are gonna be getting much better. Uh, so, I mean, I, I just, I mean, I, I, 
presume that Powell knows this. If he just looks at the printed numbers, it's it's still going to be it's going to go down. I mean, this could be the peak print. I mean, look what's happened. That was when oil was over. Uh, gasoline was over five dollars uh, a gallon. Mm-hmm. It's come way down. So, you know, the, the energy part will be much lower when we get the, the July print. But uh, really, um, I, I think most of our inflation is behind us. I think, yes, they'll do 75 and they have to turn around because the economy is really slowing. Um, I said we're in a recession. And uh, by the way, I, I, you know, I've commented the fact that we've slammed down the monetary breaks, the money supply, deposits and banks to absolutely flatten it out. And I have not seen that in any of the statistics that I've been following for the last 50 years. Mm. I mean, it is so dramatic in terms of the loss, uh, the, the slowdown in liquidity. And that's very good for forward looking. But it also means that you've got to be very, very careful about what that means for the economy. OK, so what then does that mean for stocks? Am, am I supposed to because I if I agree with you and Jim yeah. and Tom Lee and others, am, am I supposed to buy stocks today because this is it? This is it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think look at I mean, they've reacted pretty well. I mean, look what happened in the bond market. First knee jerk reaction. Oh, yields are going to go way up. And then they say, oh, my goodness. Is the Fed going to get too tight? And then all of a sudden, <laughs> you got the yields that are, you know, almost below where they were before this bad print. I mean, I think you have December 23 funds actually lower than they were before this bad print. So the market itself is saying, oh, my, are we going to be worried the Fed is really going to tighten too much? The market will bottom and rally maybe in the July. He does. 75 and says, listen, we think we've made a lot of forward progress. The prints will still show high inflation, but we feel we've done most of the tightening. Wow. I want to I want to be long on that day. Okay, Uh, it may not be July, but I want to be long on that day. But maybe it's a gift then, if if you want to use that word, that there is no Fed meeting in August. So they do 75 in July. They have the ability in Jackson Hole to say whatever they want. And in the meantime, before the next meeting in September, they have the benefit of two more reads. They have the July read CPI. They have the August CPI but before they meet again. So maybe that gives them the reprieve that they need to see what they need to see. So they don't have to necessarily do 75 in September. They can make that pivot at least to a lower increase, which gives the stock market reason to go up. And, and by the way, the more important data will be the real data on economic activity, because that's going to be more sensitive because of the backward looking nature of this CPI. If they just look at the CPI, they'll see it stubbornly high. But if the economy continues to slow the way we see, if the money supply stays flat the way we see, I mean, I, I, I see no other way but them to say, hey, you know what? It's going to be in the statistics but we have really stopped the uh, the inflation. And uh, I think that certainly can come in the real data mm-hmm. more than actually the in, the reported inflation data. No, good, good points. Um, Bryn, you have a question for the professor? I do. I do. So good to see you. So I wanted to talk about, you know, stock positioning positioning. And so this year excluded when I look back 
over the last 10 years, around 40% of the returns for stocks came from actually multiple expansion, while only around 15 came from dividends and the remaining from earnings growth. But if I go back 100 plus years, it's actually close to 50% of the return of the market came from dividends, while only a small fraction, around 10, came from multiple expansion. Do you think we're in this environment going forward where we're going to revert more back to that long-term trend where dividends and earnings growth will trump that multiple expansion that we had the luxury of having the last, the last 10 years? Yeah, this is a very good point. The big change came in the early 1980s when the government basically and the SEC allowed stock buybacks. So actually, stock buybacks are equal or even bigger than cash dividends now. And a lot of investors prefer buybacks because it's a capital gain where the tax is deferred uh, rather than, you know, uh, do when the dividends pay. If you add buybacks back to dividends, you really don't get much of a uh, trend over all those years. So that big change when the government allowed buybacks uh, um, in, in lieu of cash dividends, I think is a major reason why you, you see both the multiple expansion and the drop in that, in that dividend yield. Joe Terranova has a question for you now. Professor Siegel, good to see you this afternoon. Thank Are you. you concerned at all about the value of the U.S. dollar and the effect that it's going to have on corporate earnings as we look forward? And secondarily, you spoke about significant monetary tightening, which I also observe. Are you therefore concerned about credit availability beginning to deteriorate? Yeah, well, first, let's talk about the dollar. That is a concern. And by the way, the strong dollar is another indicator of how tight things have gotten. Um, and, you know, it, uh, you know, to be at, at 20 year highs. Yes. 40, but 40 percent of the S&P companies uh, get their revenues and profits from abroad. You know, a 10 percent tightening is 10 percent less dollars that they'll get there. That's going to hurt the bottom line of the multinationals. No question. But it also shows how tight the Fed has been. The market pricing in these vigorous hikes has stopped the money supply growth, caused record prices of the dollar, has increased the spreads. I don't think there's going to be defaults. The balance sheets are still extremely good uh, and profits are still uh, you know, good enough. Uh, I don't think that's going to widen much more than four. But the other two are definitely indicators of a very tight fit. Professor, I, I've got to run, but my last question to you would be this, and I, you, you probably don't like to do this, but um, nonetheless, I'm going to ask anyway. If you, if you, What's a reasonable uh, S&P target for you by end of year, do you think? If we're 3,800 where we are now, is it is it reasonable to think that we could be, you know, meaningfully, I don't know, between 4,000 and, and 43, 44, 45? What makes sense to you? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I actually think that the second half of the year is going to be good. I'm not going to say we're going to get to all-time highs, but I think that once the Fed says, listen, we've done most of our work, we can relax, uh, uh, the, this vigorous tightening, and maybe not even get to the targets that are necessary, uh, I think you're going to get a, great, a good value, a, a great value uh, and rally in, in, in the equity market because valuations... 16, 15 times earnings, value stocks 13, the rest of the world at 10 <laughs> is, is something you just don't see that often.
Yeah, I hear you. I guess the real question is, will we be doing that from 3300 or will we be doing that from somewhere reasonably close to where we are now? And that's the big question in terms of the kind of move I guess you think we could have. We'll, we'll talk to you soon. I always appreciate your time, Professor Siegel. Thank you. All right. Delta, the worst stock in the S&P today. It wasn't that long ago that one of our committee members bought the stock. We'll find out what they are doing with it now. We'll do it next. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. I'm Christina Parts-Nevelis, and here's our CNBC News update at this hour. Moments ago on Capitol Hill, the Senate confirmed Michael Barr to the Federal Reserve Board by a vote of 66 to 28. He will also be the central bank's top banking regulator with plans to reimpose some rules that were weakened by the Trump administration. Seattle-based Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center is partnering with Amazon to develop two cancer vaccines with trials expected to wrap up by November 1st, 2023. The vaccines will be for melanoma and metastatic refractory breast cancer. A new wave of anger is sweeping through Uvalde, Texas, over surveillance footage of police officers in body armor milling in the hallways of Robb Elementary School, where a gunman killed 19 children and two teachers. The town's mayor says its leak to media outlets was, in his words, one of the most chicken things I've seen. New York City computer system to register for monkeypox vaccination suffering a crash. The site was down for nearly an hour after the registration opened and crashes and massive delays continue to plague the system throughout the day today. There has been a shortage of monkeypox vaccines and three New York City lawmakers are calling on the federal government to increase their supply. Halftime Report returns right after this short break. Let's talk Delta Airlines. It is the worst performing stock in the S&P 500 today. That is after it posted a profit miss for the second quarter due to rising costs and cancellations. Jim Labenthal, he owns it, which is why we made him call in and talk about it. So you bought it last quarter. Ed Bastian, the CEO, was all fired up. 
He was saying how great things were, and he convinced you to buy his stock. Now what? I, I just love your intros. I always love them, Scott. You know, he's fired up again. He's fired up again, Mr. Bastian. Here are the positive things that came out of this call. There's no crack in consumer demand. Even more importantly, international and corporate travel is picking up. International travel is up to 65% of 2019 levels. At the beginning of the year, it was at 40%. That's where more money is made, international and business travel. Um, he sees no demand, uh, no demand faltering. In fact, the comment he made is whatever's going on in the economy, he's not seeing it in his business. Now, the quarter was bad because of the cancellations that you mentioned and the costs associated with them. That's a temporary phenomenon. They're working on it. They're hiring more people. It takes time. Mm. But as long as demand hangs in there, this is a, this is a good stock to own. And I'm very happy owning it. Wow. I mean, you didn't mention operating margins below their recent guidance. I mean, why'd you why'd you leave that out? Well, I, I think I think I alluded to it. No, when no, I no mentioned you didn't. You said no, no, no. You, you talked about the cancellation and delays uh, increasing costs. But jet fuel was a big part of their story. It is interesting that they didn't give guidance all that long ago and it still came in below that. And frankly, there's no reason to believe that there's going to be some giant reprieve from where jet fuel prices are now. Maybe it's maybe it's temporary. Au contraire, my frere. Uh, look at where crude oil prices are. Look at where refined product margins are. Um, you know, gasoline at the very least is down 25% month over month. Uh, crude oil's down about 20% in just the past couple of weeks. That's going to translate into lower fuel costs, period. Okay. Um, so I got your take there. And then I, I was wondering do you still own Alaska? And that stock has gotten absolutely hammered. And I'm wondering so, whether you whether you still own that, whether you think you still will stay with it. And if do you have as much optimism about it as you do Delta? Yeah, I, I do own both of them and I'm going to continue to own both of them. Now, Alaska is not going to benefit from the international travel, but what it does benefit from is a pristine balance sheet that really gives it an operating margin benefit. Um, you know, on top of that, I, I think what we're seeing here in the in Delta's report is that whatever these fears of a recession are, and they are what has depressed prices of airline stocks, it's just not showing up in the actual traffic, whether it's Delta's reported numbers or TSA passenger counts, which are hovering at about 90 percent of 2019 levels. Airline travel demand is pretty high and shows no sign of ebbing. We're going to see about that once uh once the summer travel peak gets out of the way, then the rubber's really going to hit the runway. Let's say it that uh, way. Okay. Yeah. You know, Mr. Bastian again is saying that he sees no sign of demand faltering. I mean, yeah. those are his words today. Okay. No, that's all good. Uh, I appreciate it, Jimmy. Thank you. Thanks for thanks for coming on. All right. Talk Always about good to Delta. see you, Scott. Yeah, you as well. That's Jim Labenthal. How about financials? One of the biggest laggards of the day. Some of the big banks rolling out their earnings in less than 24 hours. We'll tell you what to expect and how to play it next. Big banks set to report results in less than 24 hours. Earnings expected to contract again. We do have a lot of ownership on the desk. We also have Leslie Picker joining us on the desk now to sort of set it up. And, I, you know, uh, Mike Mayo was with me yesterday in overtime. Yep. Obviously the star bank analyst. And when one of the biggest bulls on the street has a, 
highly tempered level of enthusiasm about these coming reports. To me, that says everything about where we are. Yeah, and he's not alone. I mean, you've been seeing earnings estimates tick down Mm. over the last few weeks or so. Part of that has to do with just the fact that there are all these macro forces that are taking aim at these banks pretty much regardless of the business that they're in. So you've got volatility, which is impacting the ability to do M&A, the ability to have capital markets be strong, especially compared to last year, as you've seen just the the fall off in SPACs um, and and other areas, regular IPOs as well. Um, Higher interest rates cutting into the mortgage businesses within these firms, even though they are providing a benefit to certain businesses as a result of just being able to charge more for loan making. Mm -hmm. Um, And then overall recession fears just makes people a little jittery when it comes yeah. to the financial sector. R- reserve builds. Yep. Right. It's going to be a big thing. Mayo's thing was like, you can't go out and say a hurricane's coming and then not have a buildup in, in your reserves. You can't have it both ways. So mm-hmm. what's the negative impact of that? And I mean, he's much more positive on the, the, what, what he would describe as the main street banks over the Wall Street banks. And I think that's pretty common, too, is you kind of separate the regional banks that are doing pretty traditional commercial banking type businesses, taking in deposits, making loans. Everyone expects, expects loan growth to actually be pretty strong. Credit quality is still strong as the consumer is strong. So that part of the business, if you just kind of siphon that off, mm-hmm. doesn't look so, so bad, especially in a rising interest rate environment. Now, if people are looking ahead to 2023 and saying, oh, well, if there is a recession, if there is an economic hurricane coming and the Fed does need to cut rates, I think you've seen some trading around that with the banks where people were saying, oh, they did have that tailwind from higher interest rates and the prospect of it. Is that tailwind going to be taken away next year? And what does that mean for my you know, price target or, or what I'm willing to pay for these banks? So, Michael Farr, uh, what's your take here? You, you own Goldman Sachs. You know, the in- investment banking landscape, not great, given the overall market environment. Right. And the stock price, uh, stock prices and the stocks they own and other things aren't that great. Goldman selling at one times book, Scott. So this is a pretty cheap stock. That's one of the Wall Street banks. It could have a tough time. Goldman often has a rabbit they pull out of the hat, but I kind of expect this to be a tough quarter for them. A couple of my Main Street banks are PNC and Truist. I own them both. But I'm not looking at this really as an earnings season, Scott. I'm looking at this as guidance season. And I Mm. think the guidance from the banks is going to be most important as they look at loan loss reserves and what's happening with the consumer. You saw articles last week about all of the auto repos and some of the repo folks buying extra land to put cars. There is a crack in the consumer's ability. They're feeling this pressure, right? We know that wages aren't keeping up with inflation. They're losing purchasing power. So despite the great job numbers, the consumer's still having a tough time making ends meet. I want to see what shows up in these numbers. And beyond the banks, I really want to listen for input costs, how much inflation is affecting the numbers and pressure, and will it look like Pepsi's report yesterday saying, look, we've got a good top line, but we're not sure what's going to happen to the bottom line over the balance of the year because we don't know the costs of goods and everything else. Yeah, good points. Leslie, thank you. Thank you. Leslie Bigger, we're going to see. We're going to see what these numbers are, and we'll debate it again uh, tomorrow. We do have more moves from the investment committee. Our Stephanie Link calling in with hers. She'll do that next.
All right, let's bring in Stephanie Link. She is making a very interesting move in her portfolio, including trimming one of her largest positions. Stephanie Link, I saw today that you trimmed IBM, which frankly surprised me a lot because you have been on this train for a while and you have defended this company. You have called it a turnaround story that you were sticking with. You gave our viewers all the reasons why you were doing just that. And now you're trimming this stock. Why? Well, uh, thanks for having me. Um, basically, it's, it's profit-taking. It's not a lot of profits. It's up 3% year-to-date, but the XLK, we know, is down 25%, so it's held up remarkably well. Um, it's also right-sizing. It got to be such a big position. Um, and I also am a little concerned that 21% of their total revenues is in Europe, and also, as well, uh, as the, uh, the currency also is going to be a headwind for them, like it is going to be for many technology companies. But this got to be over a 5% position, Scott, and I'm just right-sizing it. That's what PMs have to do. I, I hear you. Um, I, I guess I would only say, I mean, you have a lot of stocks in your book, obviously, you could have picked from, maybe. Um, maybe not a whole bunch that are above 5% in, in the portfolio, but you do suggest that you have some level of concern around oh. IBM, the likes of which, frankly, you haven't had in, in, in quite a while. A little bit. It's, it's a little bit of the macro as well, right? I mean, you look at ServiceNow, you look at and you listen to Salesforce.com, and you listen to a lot of different companies, and things aren't really great. Um, I think they're, 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 this is still a turnaround story, and there's a lot to be excited about for IBM, which is why it is still a very large position for me. But again, from kind of a risk management point of view, I thought it was the right thing to do. Yeah. All right. And uh, you bought Oxy, right? I did. You, you, I think we talked about this just yesterday, and yeah. you gave a whole bunch of reasons why you liked it, and you ended on because, you know, Berkshire Hathaway, is, you know, Buffett's been loading up big time. Is, is that yeah. what ultimately got you over the edge to, to actually buy well, it's that, and it's also down 25% from May 31st, right? And they are making progress on better execution, right? I mean, the first quarter was good. They maintained their budget. They maintained production. They raised targets for chemicals and midstream. They're seeing synergies from Anadarko. They generated $3.3 billion in free cash flow, and they paid down $2.4 billion in debt. And they are on their way to getting to their net debt target goal of $20 billion. After they do that, I think you're going to start start to see buybacks and dividends again. All right. I appreciate you calling in. Stephanie Link, thank you. Hightower Chief Investment Strategist. We're back right after this quick break with Final Trades. Are you following the Halftime Report podcast? What are you waiting for? Look for us in your favorite podcasting app. Follow the Halftime Podcast now. All right, I'll see you in a few hours on Overtime, of course. Cameron Dawson with us today, along with Josh Brown, Richard Fisher as well. We'll size up exactly what the Fed is likely to do uh, in these months ahead after this hot, hot, hot read on inflation, what it means to the markets, et cetera. I'll see all of you in a few hours. Let's do some final trades. Bryn Talkington, why don't you start us off today? Perfect. I'm going to put this trade on later on today. Oh, um, the XBI, the S&P biotech sector. But I'm going to buy XBI. It's around 83, had a nice bottom around 65, but I'm going to sell the October 95 calls, collect around $3.60, and I still have around 15% upside, um, plus the yield if it gets called away in October. Okay, the old covered calls, correct? Yep. All right, good stuff. Jason Snipe, what do you got? Yeah, Scott, in, in this environment, I really like CVS here. It's trading at 11 times forward, 12% free cash flow yield, Almost a oh, little over 2% dividend yield. 
and long-term growth rate above 6%. I like it here. I think it makes sense. All right, good stuff. Good seeing you today as well. Mike, go far. Uh, I love Jason CVS. I like Disney as an investment, not a mm. trade. Streaming business is working. Parks are full. Thor, Love and Thunder, 143 million at the box office, 16% growth rate, 16 times earnings at its all time low. I'm buying it. All right, on a day when Netflix is reiterated a sell, I think, at Goldman. Joey T. AMD, NVIDIA, take your pick. Taiwan semi reports tonight. I think mm. there's asymmetric risk to the upside there. All right, thank you. It's good to see everybody. I'll see you in a few hours in overtime. The exchange begins now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash.